today, uh, you know, the, the philosopher uh, Jonathan Wolfe makes the point that, you know, in, in kind of philosophical circles, utilitarianism has kind of lost a certain amount of legitimacy. And yet at that same time that it lost the kind of philosophical legitimacy at, at a kind of bureaucratic level, at the state level, it became the kind of dominant model for policy making. So everything is, you know, subjected to a kind of cost benefit analysis. Hello, Plastic Pills listeners. We are here with a very special guest today, Neil Balali, who teaches at the University of Otago and is completing actually a postdoc in the history department right now. Uh, and he is the author of a very interesting uh, and extremely readable new book, uh, Futilitarianism, Neoliberalism and the Production of Uselessness. Uh, some of you might remember I reviewed it for Jacobin Magazine. Uh, you can check that out there. Uh, but the book just recently came out and has included uh, some high praise uh, from luminaries like Wendy Brown and Jessica White, uh, who many of you know we're very fond of at the channel. So thanks a lot for coming on, Neil. We really look forward to talking to you today. Thanks so much, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So just before we dive into the kind of meat and potatoes of utilitarianism uh, and what inspired you to write this, uh, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what interests in you in this topic? Uh, and what your academic uh, or personal mm. background is. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Matt. So um, you can probably tell from my accent that um, I I am Irish. So I did my BA and MA degrees at Queen's University in Belfast. And then I moved over to New Zealand to do my PhD. And um, my PhD was in literary studies, kind of nowhere near any of this kind of content. Um, and when I came out of my PhD as you will know, Matt, and many of your listeners and even your colleagues will know, um, finding a kind of academic job market where there are absolutely no jobs. Um, uh, so the genesis for this book kind of began in 2016 when at Otago, where, where I teach, uh, the university went through a wave of cuts to the humanities division. And there were lots of protests against the cuts and so on and so forth. Um, but it's got. I, I originally started thinking about this idea of futility around around the humanities and thinking about how the humanities come to be seen as useless, um, and not to think simply about you know protecting that uselessness. You know, there's lots of thinkers who would argue we need to do these things just because they are important or so on and so forth to defend that kind of uselessness. But it's more to think about how do things come to be constructed as useless. And so that's kind of the, the genesis of this project. Um, and then it developed more, I, the more I kind of looked into it, the more I started to realize that this idea of futility just w was kind of rife across society. It wasn't it wasn't simply due to humanities, it wasn't even simply due to university. Um, it's a kind of a, a experience that many people encounter in different avenues of, of life. Um, so the project really just took kind of, uh, developed from there and, and I really cracked, I think made a good crack in it in, in 2018. Uh, but it was kind of, it was, it was strange because it is, um, you know, as I said, my PhD is in literary studies. I was going into a completely new area, um, an area that I'd obviously be very interested in. Um, um, and I was kind of dabbling as well from kind of in, in phenomenology. And I've been really interested listening to your recent podcasts on uh, Merleau-Ponty, because um, he's the kind of gr uh, grinding of my own kind of philosophical practice. Um, yeah, so it was, it, I was 
I, I felt like I was kind of stabbing in the dark for a while, but eventually it kind of came came to fruition, and and it, it's the final piece is obviously the book Utilitarianism. Well, I have to say, you can definitely tell uh, that you come from a background in literary studies, mm-hmm. um, because it's a well written book. Uh, I mean. As you know, typically when you're assigned something uh, on neoliberalism uh, and it has the dreaded theory pejorative, uh, you kind of think intellectually this is going to be very interesting, uh, but it's going to be a slog to get through. Uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of head scratching moments. Uh, but I, I mean, I cut through this in probably about two days um, just because it was actually really affecting. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that really comes through in your writing also, uh, which is that uh, maybe in a very Pontian sense, uh, you're not kind of uh, impartial or abstracted away from this material. Uh, it really feels lived in, uh, in a certain sense. Uh, and that passion comes through in the text. So could you maybe talk a little bit about mm. what inspired you uh, emotionally uh, or theoretically yeah. to write the book before we start diving into uh, the real nuts and bolts of it? Yeah, cool. That's, I mean, that's very kind, Matt. And, and it's something I really want to, um, I feel so I should important. say, it reminded me a bit of, a, and this is high praise because I'm a fan, yeah. uh, Mark Fisher's writing. Uh, yeah. You know? Not, not exactly doing this clinical kind of analysis mm. uh, that you might expect from somebody, but really living uh, the material that you're writing about. Yeah, that, I mean, that's that's the highest praise, really. Um, yeah, and I, I think Fisher is such an extraordinary writer, and I, um, and I think it's the kind of energy that he brings to, to his work. And I guess, I think for me, probably my background in literary studies is really helpful when it comes to writing these about this kind of topic because it does give you a grounding in, in how to kind of tell a story and how to hold a reader on, on some level. Um, and I was really, really conscious the whole time writing it. And I think in, in all my writing, um, whether it's my academic research or, or any other writing I've done for kind of more general audience, I am really cognizant on, on the writing being a kind of readable and and enjoyable and effective and I what really wanted with the book because you're right you know lots of the, the kind of discussions of neoliberalism can be quite kind of abstract and and operating at the kind of high theoretical level and I really wanted to combine that kind of high theory and low theory in in this text and 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 not to 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 simply uh, one thing I really didn't want to do was just add another kind of denunciation of neoliberalism to the kind of mountain that is out there. So I did want to build a kind of theoretical project, but at the same time, I wanted to ground that project in kind of lived experience in, in a kind of, uh, in affect, I guess. And perhaps even as you kind of touched on there, that, that stems from my kind of grounding in, in some like Merleau-Ponty's work. But so, so it, um, those are, those are two things I really kept in mind was one, I want this to be kind of read almost in a kind of novelistic way, um, but also to, to combine that kind of high theory and low theory um, uh, in, in the book. And it's really, I mean, I was really pleased with, with your review and that you kind of picked up on that and others have as well, that they've, they find it a really readable book, um, which is kind of great, kind of exactly the kind of praise I was, I was hoping for. Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, the, I'd say actually the densest part of the book, uh, or at least the one that's the most technical, uh, are the initial few chapters. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. actually one of the things that I want us to start talking about. Yeah. Uh, because the book is about neoliberalism uh, and the kind mm-hmm. of utilitarian 
condition that it brings about. Uh, but you locate the root, uh, theoretical and ideological, of the kind of neoliberal era uh, in a somewhat unexpected place, the kind of philosophical doctrine of utilitarianism yeah. as espoused by people like Jeremy Bentham, uh, John Stuart Mill, uh, and Henry Sidgwick. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about why utilitarianism uh, is such a focus for you and how it is that at least a, an element of utilitarianism, because uh, it's quite a complicated yeah. analysis, leads to something like the neoliberal ethos. Yeah, and I think that's, um, I, I think it is a kind of surprising place. And in some way it was surprising for me when I even um, came to, to kind of take this, this avenue into neoliberalism. But I think it's, utilitarianism is a really important doctrine in thinking about neoliberalism precisely because I guess I, I'll start at, at kind of where we are now and kind of almost work backwards, but that, that today, uh, you know, the, the philosopher uh, Jonathan Wolfe makes the point that, you know, in, in kind of philosophical circles, utilitarianism has kind of lost a certain amount of legitimacy. And yet at that same time that it lost the kind of philosophical legitimacy at, at a kind of bureaucratic level, at the state level, it became the kind of dominant model for policy making. So everything is, you know, subjected to a kind of cost benefit analysis. Um, you weigh up kind of uh, the pleasures against the the pains and so on and so forth. So it, it's, so in many ways, utilitarian utilitarian thinking has become central to kind of governance in in our period. But I was more interested here on kind of I, I guess I think you would have picked up in the book. I was kind of more interested in the kind of subjectification that kind of occurs under under neoliberalism. And so I was thinking more about the way that neoliberalism demands, the kind of era we live in now demands this kind of hyper utility maximization that we must continually maximize our utility, make ourselves kind of the most useful we can be to maximize our human capital, so on and so forth. And yet at the same time, neoliberalism seems to completely undercut the, the kind of structures, the social relations that can actually turn that kind of practice of utility maximization into some kind of collective happiness, which is the, you know, the greatest happiness principle, which is the founding kind of idea at the center of, of utilitarianism, which is, you know, the, the most moral course of action is the one that maximizes the greatest amount of happiness for the greatest amount of people. And that's kind of completely severed under neoliberalism. So essentially utility maximization, what I argue, and this is what the, the term utilitarianism is, is that we all maximize utility now, but in doing so, we actually worsen the, our kind of collective social and economic conditions. So it's almost as a kind of an inversion of the utilitarian th thought. This is not, and in saying that, I'm not arguing that their utilitarianism is therefore a great theory and we should move back to some sort of utilitarian utopia. I'd, I think there's inherent issues with utilitarianism from the very get-go, but that's the kind of where I get to with the piece. I guess why I went back to the kind of intellectual history of utilitarianism is, you know, intellectual history is one of the uh, and is one of the key approaches to neoliberalism um, uh, through, you know, people Philip Morosky or Dieter Playway or even Jessica White, Quince Bodian's work, um, mm -hmm. looking at the kind of key thinkers of the neoliberal 
um, period. So I, I, I think I took a slight diversion into a different kind of intellectual history to show that actually the neoliberals were sometimes consciously and sometimes perhaps unconsciously st working it with and against a kind of utilitarian idea. Uh, or util uh, utilitarian thought, sorry. Um, someone like Hayek, for instance, explicitly um, uh, talks about Bentham's work and extremely kind of critical of Bentham's work. And as I show in the first chapter, at the same time, Keynes is, is also a kind of anti-Benthamite utilitarianism, and yet they're coming at it from completely different directions. So um, I'm not sure I fully answered your question there, but I think... Oh, no, no. Definitely. I mean, this is kind of the interesting jumping off point uh, mm. for your analysis of utilitarianism for me, because uh, as I pointed out in the review, uh, and as you point out over the course uh, of the book, uh, utilitarianism has meant a lot of different things to a mm. lot of different people, right? Uh, yeah. There are radical kinds of utilitarianism uh, that might be actually quite amenable to a kind of mm. egalitarian politics. Uh, and somebody that I talk a little bit about um, in my own work is somebody like J.S. Mel. Yeah. Uh, who identified at the end of his life as a socialist, advocated for workers' democracy, so on. Uh, and even Bentham, you know, had democratic inclinations near the end of his life. But that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Uh, and what's kind of interesting as a historical point in your text uh, is this jumping off point where utilitarianism kind of split into two different branches. Uh, mm -hmm. One was a kind of anti-Benthamite Keynesianism, uh, which focused on kind of a moderate welfare state, managing the crises of capital, all the stuff you discuss. Uh, and then the other is neoliberalism. Uh, and both of them took elements of classical utilitarianism, uh, but went really far afield with them. Yeah. Uh, so could you maybe, let's put the Keynesian one aside. We'll talk about that some other day. Uh, how did neoliberalism pick up on these kinds of utilitarian themes, but then as you very artfully put it in the book, kind of invert one's expectations. Uh, so rather than producing the greatest possible happiness for the greatest number of people, it produced extraordinary unhappiness uh, for yeah. many people. Uh, and yet still retains a kind of ideological, not just hegemony, but uh, hegemonic connection to at least elements uh, of this kind of cost-benefit analysis we associate with utilitarianism. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very well put. And I think, um, so, yeah, setting aside the kind of Keynesian one, because I think that's probably quite self-evident. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that that was the kind of where I wanted, that's what I wanted to show is that, that neoliberalism does, does in some way evolve a a utilitarian view of the world. Um, and, and what ends up happening is that it, as I really kind of intimated towards, mm -hmm. it, it manages to find a way to centralize um, or to, to place utility maximization at the kind of heart of the way that we behave in the world without having to provide at all this kind of collective or, or um, aggregative kind of social welfare. Um, so what this goes back, for instance, particularly in Hayek's work, who, who he really does directly engage with Bentham in a, a very critical way. But what I end up pinpointing in the book is that even though Hayek is extremely critical of Bentham, he ends up instituting a very similar view of society to Bentham, which is society as a collection of individual interests, particularly self-interests. Um, and he, you know... Um, and, and that's what Bentham, Bentham says, you know, it's vain to talk about the idea of community, that community is simply just the, the um, aggregation of all these kind of individual interests, individual desires. Um, and this is exactly, you know, um, Hayek basically makes the exact same point, you know, that, that 
social ends are the ends of kind of uh, of all individual kind of designers. So so the social is never a kind of totality at all for for either of them. It's only ever a kind of a kind of aggregation of individual interests. And this has become is central to kind of particularly Benthamite utilitarianism. And I think you very helpfully point out in your review is that that's not necessarily the same as some other versions of utilitarianism, particularly Mill's utilitarianism, particularly towards the end, the end of his life. Um, I mean, there is, a, as I think you pointed out as well, another there is a kind of uh, elitism to, to Mill's work that is particularly oh, problematic. Yeah, yeah and, and um, but I think the point still stands that there is a more, at least a project within utilitarianism that is more amenable to a kind of democratic socialist politics. Than particularly Bentham, there there's a real um, uh, authoritarian streak in Bentham's work. Um, oh, definitely. I mean, yeah. I remember uh, he wrote a piece about why it is everyone should get tattooed, uh, so it'll be easier for us to identify uh, any member <laughs> of society, right? Uh, yeah. So when Foucault, you know, kind of talks about uh, you know panopticism as a kind of proto-authoritarian outlook, uh, this wasn't just him uh, stretching uh, a metaphor, right? Bentham really no. did have these really warped kind of inclinations uh, at points. Yeah, exactly. He was, he was a very li- kind of literal thinker. Like he, he wasn't really working at a kind of abstract level. No. Like, yeah. What he said is what he meant. I mean, you got to give him props for that. It's true. I mean, yeah, he's one of those kind of people that every now and then emerges in the history of political thought where he comes up with this interesting kind of argument where you might think, okay, cost benefit analysis, but then yeah. he just runs to the extreme with it. <laughs> yeah. He's like, if we have to barrel through, Every kind of common sense intuition, uh, every kind of plausible more argument against this uh, in order to kind of push this conclusion to the utmost, then so be it. That's what we'll do. Uh, and you kind of almost got to give him a few props for that because it leads him to really weird places. Yeah, it does. Like, least... that's, that's fucked up. But at least he's willing yeah. to go there, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's helpful in that regard. Um, and I think that's why thinkers from the kind of uh, neoliberal kind of thought collective or um, do pick up on aspects of utilitarianism, but but reject the kind of overall pro- project of utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I think they find in utilitarianism is an main is an ability to identify that utility maximi- utility maximization can be used in in aiding in in in, aid, in protecting capitalism from democracy. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think you know in someone like Mill's work in particular. Uh, particular, he he sees that idea of utility maximization as a way of enhancing democracy, of protecting, um, protecting the demos from the kind of the 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 worst ac- excesses of capitalism. But I think for the neoliberals, it's the other way around that they actually see that the pro the the process of utility maximization as a way of um, instilling a kind of hyper productivity at the heart of capitalism. But also as as a way not to provide that kind of uh, social relations, social structure that can guarantee the greatest happiness principle that can give some sort of greatest happiness to the greatest number. Um, so it's basically utility maximization towards individual survival, um, and that's that's kind of where I get to with that that we then enter this kind of utilitarian period where we're all trying to maximize your utility, but in doing so, we end up, the, the kind of, our, our um, collective conditions get worse and worse. Um, and 
many of us find ourselves trapped in, in that cycle, um, whether it's in the university, whether it's in general society and anywhere. Um, it, it's a kind of pervasive rationality, I think. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, that's a kind of dark dialectic uh, that your mm. book takes us down. Uh, so I should say again, uh, not an uplifting book, uh, Futilitarianism, uh, but in the best sense of the word, that is kind of a call to action in some senses, uh, to not think of uh, agitation as futile. But, you know, I, I think the point that you're bringing up there uh, really for me was at the heart of the book. So uh, as you kind of point out in the text, there's this theoretical tension uh, at the heart of utilitarian doctrine uh, between uh, what's sometimes called rational hedonism uh, mm. and universal hedonism, right? Or this belief that utilitarians hold that we're all self-interested creatures, that we all try to maximize our individual utility uh, at all costs. Uh, but at the same time, some utilitarian thinkers at least argued that uh, we should almost paradoxically set that aside and focus on securing the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. Uh, and there's this kind of fundamental tension within the doctrine uh, that you yeah. highlight uh, that Henry Sidgwick uh, actually brought to the fore in his work, probably most clearly. Uh, and you say that kind of what neoliberals do is they chuck all this stuff about a moral obligation to secure the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people, which at least would be somewhat outward directed. Uh, and they say, no, Bentham was right. Uh, people are just self-interested animals. All that we do uh, is pursue our subjective pleasures uh, at all cost uh, and indifferent to the kind of concerns of everyone else. And they create an economic system uh, that matches that. And one of the kind of consequences of this, and this speaks to the common point you make up about freedom, uh, as they reconceive a freedom purely along the lines of the pursuit uh, of utility maximization by individual actors. So you're free if you have a choice between 50 different flavors of ice cream, uh, <laughs> because now you have 50 different flavors you can choose from, and you can choose any one that you want as long as you can pay for them. That's what freedom is. Uh, but freedom does not include a right to, for instance, democratically choose not to exist in an economic system uh, where that's the range of choices uh, that are provided for you and no more. Uh, so considerations of things like democratic or social freedom, those are put to the side. Uh, even questions about substantive freedom, like the kind of freedom that I might have if uh, I was poor uh, and I had more material resources to kind of pursue my life goals, even that's uh, put aside. Uh, and that, to me at least, is the real problem uh, with neoliberal doctrine uh, and why it feels like such an unfree society, because so many of these important choices are taken away from us uh, and replaced with the argument that, well, at least now we have 50 flavors of ice cream. Uh, yeah. From. Would you say that that's a kind of accurate depiction of the political conclusion of your book? Uh, and can you maybe elaborate on some of these ideas? Because uh, it really reminded me a bit of uh, people like Quince Lobodian, Wendy Brown, or Jessica White, others who have kind of talked in this direction. Yeah, definitely, and it's not. I mean, it's not surprising. I think you've already identified that that that, that their work is quite influential in my own thinking about neoliberalism. But I think that's a really brilliant um, synopsis of exactly the, the idea that I'm trying to promote and to put forward in the book. It, it is it's exactly that's the version of freedom that we get. And, and you know, in her work, Jessica White calls it a kind of margin of freedom that neoliberalism produces. Is is that um, it. It, it, it kind of takes place in the name of freedom and, and it, it gives us this kind of illusion of freedom but it's a very limited version of freedom so you're right you get to, you get to choose between 50 different ice creams but you have no choice on on how you pay for ice cream how ice cream is produced how so on and so forth it's it's very kind of self-interested and um 
anti-relational. Uh, again, thinking back to kind of Merleau Ponty there, mm-hmm. and it's it's no coincidence that you know Bentham's thought thought in particular was was kind of celebrated by many of the kind of classical and then kind of neoclassical economists. Um, uh, I I think the editor of of Bentham's collected works, Werner Stark, he he called Bentham and David Ricardo the kind of flesh of one flesh that, that they shared. <laughs> This kind of essential, this belief that man is essentially a selfish animal, and and not just that it is selfish animal, but it, it's it's useless to fight that selfishness. That that we should actually just embrace it, um, and and of course there's crossovers there with the kind of neoliberal thinkers and the way that they conceive of, of freedom, and, and Wendy Brown also makes a similar point. You know that that you, you know neoliberalism takes place in in the name of freedom, and yet it tears up. Freedom's grounding at every um, uh, at every juncture, um, and that, that's the kind of point I I get I make in the book. At one point, is that this it's freedom to be completely alone <laughs> on some level. It's freedom to be uh, cast aside and to basically to, to sink or swim. That's the kind of version of freedom that that emerges under under neoliberalism. Um, and and uh, I draw in the book on um, Binchul Han's work, kind of German media theorist, and um, and he he you know talks about um, that, that capital gives us um, capital promotes a certain version of freedom that suits capital, and we interpret that freedom as if it's our freedom. So we we end up kind of taking on a capitalist version of freedom that that actually cements the kind of hegemonic um, situation of capitalism. And yet we we interpret that as our freedom. That it's our our desire, our it's our role to kind of fulfil the freedom that capital needs us to do. And and that's where I think Savodian's work is really important. And and I think I I, I saw him. I think it was a tweet actually where he, someone asked him to describe neoliberalism in one one sentence. And he said the continual protection of capitalism from democracy. And I think that's yeah. a kind of real succinct. Um, definition of exactly how neoliberalism works and and the the impact that has therefore on the idea of freedom which i think you've articulated really well there um and i think i'd be interested because from reading your work as well like when you come to talk because you're obviously very well versed in the kind of liberal tradition when you come to think of neoliberalism how do you define it in your own work Oh, I tend to define it in exactly the way that uh, Slobodian did, uh, as kind of effort to encase the market uh, from democratic and political pressures uh, and to insist that the kinds of freedoms that are offered by capitalist uh, relations of production are the only kind of freedoms that are worth having. Or some would even go farther and say that they're the only kind of freedoms that we can't have, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think Hayek was sometimes more sensitive to this uh, than somebody like Ludwig von Mises would be. Yeah. Uh, uh, in the sense that he would say there are other kinds of freedom that people might want, like democratic freedoms, but they are so dangerous uh, and they are so useless that we should not prioritize them. Uh, and in fact, he consistently would say things like uh, if we have a choice between a democratic socialist society uh, and an authoritarian liberal society, no question we should have an authoritarian neoliberal society, I would add. Right. Uh, because that would be, in his understanding, more free uh, and at the very least more prosperous. Uh, than a democratic society. Uh, and I should also add that I'm not here to diss ice cream, right? Uh, I do think that having <laughs> 50 different flavors of ice cream and being yeah. able to choose between them 
is a kind of freedom. Uh, and I don't have a problem with it when I'm at the supermarket, right? Uh, but if you were to ask me what kind of freedoms do I think are more meaningful, uh, the choice between 50 different brands of ice cream uh, or the choice to be able to decide what kind of economic system uh, I want to live under or, or what the power relations of my society are going to be, uh, then no question uh, I would choose that, to say that those are more important. Uh, I don't actually think we have to choose because I hope that on a democratic so socialist society, we still have 50 flavors yeah. plus kinds of ice cream. Yeah, at um, least 49 maybe. <laughs> at least 49, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the kind of suggestion that that's not integral uh, to human freedom just strikes me as not just like uh, normatively wrong, but also a bad description of who we are to kind of get back to the utilitarian uh, kind of presupposition. Um, but you just kind of moving on, because this is what I thought was the most darkly kind of funny part of your book, uh, when you talk about how it is that uh, not just we exist in this kind of society, uh, we live in a society, as it, you know, as memes sometimes say, right? But how people internalize these expectations and reflect them, uh, and how the kind of ideological culture of the time uh, really becomes almost this kind of comic pastiche uh, of neoliberal logics. Uh, so in the book, you talk a little bit about how it is that neoliberalism, uh, sometimes consciously, uh, sometimes unconsciously, try to remold us uh, into thinking of human subjectivity along entrepreneurial lines, where you need to see yourself, uh, not just your labor, but now your actual self as a kind of capital uh, that continuously need to be valorized, marketed, improved, uh, and this really darkly funny part, uh, you talk about, um, what's his name? Tom Peters' article uh, for Fast Company, The Brand Called You, uh, where he says, look, you need to start seeing yourself as a brand uh, that you're going to continuously try to improve upon. Uh, and then he lists all these different techniques to do so. Uh, and you point out that this is really a horrifying kind of image of human subjectivity. Uh, one that's extraordinarily alienating and dehumanizing, just to use the old-fashioned terms. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about it, because for somebody like me, uh, it is precisely the way that neoliberalism reshapes our subjectivity that really speaks to its perverse quality uh, and what's really disturbing about its logics. Yeah, thanks, Matt. And I, I, that's that's really cool. <laughs> and and um, it has been nice, actually, people, when I have talked about people, even though, as you said, it is kind of a kind of dark book, um, I did want to have moments of kind of comedy in there to kind of alleviate <laughs> um, the darkness. Um, but yeah, so I think, as, as I said, I, I am really interested here in, in the kind of subjectifi subjectification associated with, with neoliberalism. So how we come to think of ourselves as subjects, uh, how we interpret our behaviours, um, sometimes how we don't even think about our behaviours, um, which I guess is more in the kind of Foucauldian approach to neoliberalism, although I wouldn't necessarily describe myself as a, as a Foucauldian. Um, and I think this idea of the brand called you really uh, epitomizes the, the, the impact of, of how we actually are constructed as subjects. The, the kind of funny thing about this article, and this comes through in your yeah. book, is this isn't intended as some kind of sinister manifesto, right? It's not like a CIA report saying, we need to remake people to this. It's done in this kind of extraordinarily chipper fashion, right? You know, Think about the ways that you can improve uh, marketing yourself. Think about what you could do to transform yourself into uh, a more likable kind of personality, right? All these kinds of banalities uh, that are kind of troped out as just common sense wisdom. Uh, that's what's really kind of darkly funny uh, about yeah. this article. Yeah, I think that's that's the, the, the scary part of that article is that it's done in good faith. 
and um, <laughs> in with any without no hint of irony, it's basically we should behave as if we are a billboard at all points of our life that we should never stop thinking about it. He says that you know our 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 prior our our priority is to be head marketer of me Inc. You know that's <laughs> yeah. that's how we now behave as individuals, and for me it's such a terrifying kind of vision of humanity. And yet it seems so caught. I think that's the article. It just seems so logical in the way that he describes it. Like, why wouldn't we behave like this? Um, and this, I, you know, I pinpoint this within the kind of logic of human capital, which really became central to, to uh, neoliberal economic theory, particularly under Gary Becker's work. Um, the idea that we, we are, um, we build kind of um, everything that we do as individuals as a kind of contributor contribution towards our human capital. And it's often the, the say this was the logic that kind of underpins the transformation of, of say higher education from a social right to a kind of thing that you pay to a service, a thing that you pay for, is that why should the state pay for um, your education when you're the one that will benefit from it? It's your human capital that you are investing in. And if you invest in it and make the wrong decision and you can't get a job, well, it's actually, you've made a bad investment. It's nothing to do with the, the state. And this is kind of grounding of human capital theory. And, and, and you see that in Foucault's work with the idea of the entrepreneurs of the self is that the self becomes a kind of thing to sell, essentially. It becomes a permanent kind of commercial project that you're constantly having to invest in and show to other people and sell to other people in a certain way and hope that other people invest in it. And you build your human capital that way and Peter's article seems to just it just takes that as a given as a well this is how humans always behave and therefore you should make the most of it and so therefore we get what happens in a world where we all behave as brands is that there is no kind of capacity for a kind of uh, for a relationality that isn't competitive um, again Bing Chohan talks about um, under this logic it's impossible to have a relationship that's that's free of purpose. So essentially, every single interaction you have with another can is essentially a capitalist relationship, and you're competing against one another for in the kind of marketplace of human relations. And a quote, I think, another quote that I use in the book is from Jeff Bezos, um, <laughs> yeah. and he, yeah, and he and talking about the idea of a personal brand, and again, he says this with with complete. No irony with the sense that this is a real positive thing, but he says, your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. And for me, such a statement is, is couldn't be a more succinct definition of paranoia. Like the very thing, one thing that enables us to just be as human beings is that we, if we constantly have to think about what others are saying about us behind our backs, we would be crippled. We, we wouldn't be able to move. And to realize how much your uh, economic uh, and even physical destiny is bound up with that. Yeah. So you now rise and fall on the success of your brand. And if your brand is what people say when you're not in the room, uh, you can't even be sure on how successful you are about that. So you need kind of uh, this paranoiac concern for everything that's going on while you're not present uh, and when you're not invested in your activities. Yeah, exactly. You can only, yeah, ex that's such a, that is exactly the point. And, and, and it also means that when you are in the room, can you really trust what people are telling to your face? If, if, if all that matters is what people say about you when you're not there, then you completely have no control over 
um, how you are perceived by others. And I should say that I think people really respond to this at an emotional level. Uh, mm. I mean, take an episode of Black Mirror. Uh, you know, uh, what are the kind of recurring tropes uh, that's presented there uh, as a kind of critique of late capitalism on occasion? Uh, is this idea that it's very hard for people to actually be sincere with one another. Mm. Uh, not because people don't want to be sincere or not because we've lost the capacity for sincerity. I think sometimes uh, that kind of critique is overstated. But precisely because we're so concerned with marketing the brand called you uh, that we never are capable of actually saying how it is that we feel about something, uh, giving opinions that might be controversial, uh, upsetting everyone, even if that might have a positive benefit for them, uh, for the broader society, because uh, that would be damaging to the broad called you. Uh, and... It creates not just this kind of paranoiac uh, society uh, where we're constantly wondering what other people are thinking about us, but also one where we feel that we can't be, uh, to use an old-fashioned term, you know, true to ourselves. Yeah, exactly. And, and also it kind of confuses us within what is to be true to yourself in, in that sense. Is, and I, I see it with, you know, even um, teaching kind of students, you know, you alert them to the idea of human capital and they all say I don't want to I'm not a piece of capital I don't want to think about myself as capital but then at the same time they know that they have to sort of kind of build a certain version of themselves if they want to you know be successful or achieve you know particularly even in especially in a kind of avenues that used to be kind of traditionally and uh, antithetical towards kind of capitalism and like say the creative arts or things there's the idea now to become a writer or an artist or anything or even academia right I yeah mean, academia you know? yeah exactly you have to build a kind of brand that that people then build uh, can buy into and you build your human capital that way and that's how you become successful um and what this produces i think is is a kind of community of of that's characterized by both need and distrust so the need is that you need others to buy into your brand, so you're constantly having to kind of sell yourself to others. But then this this deep distrust that others are actually bought into your brand, or a kind of hollowness that you think, how, do people actually like? Do they, even the sense do people like me, or do they like the version of me that I'm selling? Um, or if yeah. you've built built a brand, or you, say you're a writer, for instance, and you've built a brand, and that's kind of preceded your um, avenue into becoming a well-known writer, is are people do people see you as a good writer, or do they simply have they bought into your brand? Is this kind of so you're you're always left with this kind of hollowness, I think, in that situation. And this stands for the fact that we can never know what others really think of us. Um, so that. It's, it's, it's a really kind of crippling condition and as you said it can only lead to a kind of sense of paranoia and this is the kind of illusory community that that neoliberal capitalism produces um that, that even you know marx talked about the kind of illusory community of, of capitalism where there's kind of, of course there's class domination within within that system um and as marx argues it's actually only the ruling class that, that gets to experience a proper version of freedom a kind of the one where you can be true to, to yourself, to use that kind of term. Um, but he makes the opposite argument, essentially, that actually individuals obtain their freedom through their associations with other individuals on a, on a um, legitimate and genuine level, not as a version of brand. And this is really at odds with neoliberal rationality, where, where freedom is, which you touched on earlier, freedom is always seen as freedom from others rather than freedom with others. 
Um, and and so in a in a kind of world of self brands, there only ever is competition. Like competition can only be the the kind of the logic that that develops. Um, and this to me is really kind of crippling political position. Um, and yet it's really scary how even on the left how this this kind of uh, no, this rationality of of self branding has become really kind of prominent. Um, so I guess that's what I'm trying to. I think using Peter's article is, is was hopefully useful in, in that regard and oh, that that it, that it is so what's the word like um obvious or, or so so it's so written in good faith that it actually is terrifying that the, the kind of naivety of it oh absolutely right uh it's the kind of marcusian uh one-dimensionality or flatness to it uh that's really disturbing this notion that uh the article is all about surface uh, and yeah. it's become our society has become so superficial that nobody sees any problem with being surface any longer. Right. Uh, the depth isn't really required for you to be able to market yourself successfully. But I, I think there is a kind of depth uh, that we see in neoliberal subjects, but not necessarily the kind you want, uh, which is kind of what I was going to um, move on to next, because you talk a lot in the book about this sense of, what I'll term it is responsibilization uh, that mm. neoliberalism imposes upon us. Uh, this sense that, according to market logic, uh, you rise and fall on your own merits. We all know that that's untrue, uh, but this is the kind of ideology that's promulgated. Uh, and once upon a time, uh, this is bad enough when you think about the exploitation that was undertaken under classical capitalism, right? When you went in for your job, you worked really hard, uh, the product of your labor was appropriated from you kind of classical Marxist story. Uh, but what's problematic about neoliberalism in your take uh, is how, since we're now all our own kind of brand, uh, when you fail, it's not just that you didn't work hard enough, it's that there's something fundamentally wrong about everything that society sees as being important about you, right? Uh, the brand that is you was a bust. People don't like you. And this leads to a tremendous sense of responsabilization that goes way deeper uh, than when people experienced before when they were in conditions of economic precarity. Uh, and what's interesting about this, uh, I think also is the sense of powerlessness that instills. Because while we all associate the neoliberal era with being able to do what it is that you want, uh, with kind of YOLO type mentalities, yeah. uh, because it does lead people to feel so responsible for their individual life and so connect disconnected from everyone else to the extent where they can't form uh, kind of communities for collective action because everyone's competing with one another. Uh, there's very little power to actually change anything. Uh, so all we can do is kind of feel impotent in the face of large-scale social problems uh, that we know we need to do something about, but since none of us can do anything about it individually, uh, and we're all made to feel responsible for not being able to do that, uh, nothing gets done and the situation worsens. Uh, and this is kind of the pessimistic takeaway I got from the book. Would you say that that's accurate? Uh, and I suppose just to kind of move to a more uplifting uh, kind of narrative. Is there anything we can do about that? Yeah, I think that that is the, the kind of that that's the condition which I call in the book the futilitarian condition that I'm trying to articulate. Um, and I will talk a bit about how we might move beyond that. But yeah, exactly. That's the is that we get trapped in this kind of cycle of of I guess failure. I think the point you made there about that that the failure goes deeper than than perhaps where it used to in a kind of classic kind of capitalist exploitation. And it's almost, I think that's, I hadn't quite articulated it in that way, but 
it's almost a, a kind of it's not a kind of ontological failure it's not just a kind of i would say so yeah i mean yeah it's not enough now just to sit there and be like uh you're not gonna, you're gonna get a shitty wage and you're not gonna be able to look after your family uh it's that you're gonna get a shitty wage you're not gonna be able to look after your family and that's not just because you didn't work hard enough it's because there's something wrong with you yeah exactly yeah so it's a, it, it, yeah such a, and that's a really important development i think and a, a, a really terrifying development is oh, that, yeah, yeah no. it goes beyond that so it's, it's actually something it's not f- something wrong with the system it's not something even wrong with with the job the specific job we do it's something specifically wrong with your being and it's no surprise that in that kind of in a world where that kind of that level of, of domination and failure lands at the kind of ontological level that we see the rise uh, that we do live in a kind of period of kind of you know mental health kind of epidemic and again seeing it with um with students and our kind of our generation and a younger generation of kind of coming into the world that that kind of neoliberal world that's been well established that actually anxiety and depression are quite logical responses to to the kind of conditions that we that we encounter um and this is where i i find uh, jody dean's work quite helpful in in that regard in that she you know talk, we talk a lot about the kind of pathologies of of capitalism uh, or late, late capitalism which are you know depression anxiety um other forms of kind of mental health issues um and Mark Fisher has written about this, you know, as mental health yeah. as a political issue rather than a kind of individual or or even health issue. Um, but Jodie Dean makes this makes this really nice artic- articulation that I find really helpful is that she she argues that it's that they these the pathology isn't anxiety or depression or anything like that. The pathology is the individual form itself. It's a pathological position to take. That, that we are simply completely responsible for our own individual well-being. And this kind of pervasive individualism, that's that's what breeds kind of depression, anxiety. And I think you've articulated it in a way that actually is very helpful in that it's it's an ontological um, failure that we experience. And therefore... This really limit, and this is part of the kind of domination, the kind of aggressive nature of, of neoliberalism is that it it puts us into a position that I call the utilitarian condition, where we are incapable of um, changing the kind of circumstances in which we live because we have been so kind of atomized and we're so kind of crushed that we we aren't able to kind of put together. Um, uh, it's not that we aren't, but but in general, we, the kind of collective action needed is kind of not there. Um, and, and, and in fact, interesting, I think, uh, as well, certain development of neoliberalism post-2008, you know, other scholars have talked about, you know, punitive neoliberalism. Pierre Dardot and Christian Laval talk about post-2008 neoliberalism as a war against the population. So I think in earlier stages of neoliberalism, it was more kind of passive domination, you know, incentivizing certain ways of behaving, like incentivizing entrepreneurialism, so on and so forth. And then post-2008, it was a kind of more dominating, uh, uh, active domination of austerity and thing, things like that. So I think um, getting back to, to the kind of point 
that, that you were making. When we get trapped in the kind of futilitarian condition, it really limits our capacity to, to, to do anything about the situation which we find ourselves in. And so where I move towards at the end of the book is towards the idea of what I call the futilitariat, which is obviously a kind of play on the, the idea of the precariat. <laughs> Yeah. But in the same way that, that precarity has been a really helpful term for naming a kind of shared experience that many people that many people share across um, society, and it has been used for action, um, a, a kind of collect uh, political groups that have been organised around the idea of preca precarity, particularly precarious work. I see a similar potential in the idea of futility. And what I argue is actually the, the concept of futility extends beyond precarity. That, that many of us recognize precarity, many of us might be in precarious situations. I guess we're all, I guess we are all in a precarious situation given kind of climate change. But, but many people would not describe themselves as precarious. But I think lots of people will recognize this concept, the, the, the idea of futility even if they are, you know, in a, in a steady job or they have a good income, they have a house and so on and so forth, this idea of futility does kind of shadow us and haunt us on, on some level. And so what I move towards is that, that actually this shared experience of futility, not to say that, that some people's experience of futility is also a lot more crippling than others, but it still can be the basis of a kind of shared political project. And I'm not arguing towards any kind of, you know, um, innovative model of, of political organization or anything. I still think, you know, unionization is good. I think protests are good. I think any kind of collective mobilization is good. But I, I think what I'm trying to do is is to produce a kind of uh, uh, something that, w that can pull us together on a kind of subjective level or, or an intersubjective level to say this is this is an experience that we share in some case or form. And actually what neoliberalism wants us to think is that that futility represents a defect of our individual characters. But in recognizing it in one another and recognizing that we all share the sense of futility, we can actually direct it outwards towards that's the system that produces the experience of futility. And that's basically the aim of the book is to lay the kind of theoretical foundations for that. Um, kind of what I call the becoming common uh, for a kind of producing a kind of that simply we can on a very simple level we can go yeah I, I recognize that experience of futility and I see that other people have that experience of futility perhaps this is something we can use to actually get us out of of the futilitarian condition to see that it's not all up to us that we are incapable simply as individuals of changing the world in the way that nihilism suggests that we that we can. Uh, no, absolutely. And I have to say, uh, for all I've characterized this as a dark book, and it is a dark book, uh, it does end uh, on a kind of call to action. Uh, and I have to say that uh, by the conclusion of it, uh, I wasn't so much depressed as angry. Uh, I wanted to do something. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit more optimistic uh, maybe than I was a year or two ago. Uh, not that there aren't extraordinary matters of concern, uh, whether you talk about climate change, the ongoing uh, COVID epidemic, uh, or the resurgence of uh, the far right in a lot of countries, too many countries. Uh, but at the same time, we've seen a kind of mild social democratic surge uh, in some European countries. Uh, if you think about the recent election of the SPD in Germany, 
Uh, neoliberal, sorry, uh, there was Gabriel Boric uh, and his victory in Chile, uh, which I think is itself historically quite telling. Uh, if you think of neoliberalism as being birthed uh, in a Chilean yeah. context, uh, the fact that they've now kind of overthrown the Pinochet era, I would hope is a kind of symbol uh, of things to come. So why don't we end on that? Do you think that there are any reasons to be optimistic uh, about an end to the futilitarian neoliberal condition? Uh, mm-hmm. And if so, where do you see those sources of optimism? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, and I do try to say in the intro to the book that this is ultimately an optimistic endeavor, but it, mm-hmm. I'm, perhaps I'm more trying to convince myself there than, than anything. We always do, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I guess it was kind of to wade, to, to, to go to the depths of the darkness to actually then come up out into the light. And I guess the conclusion is an attempt to, to do that on some level. But I, I really do see kind of uh, hope and optimism um, even in just not even just in recent a couple of recent developments, but in the last few years, the kind of rise of of a kind of democratic socialist project, um, um, and the rise. I think Chile is a really important development. I mean, it's, we don't know how that's going to go yet, um, and you know, Greece gives us kind of room to be slightly pessimistic. But given Chile's kind of um, symbolic importance w- with neoliberalism and um, Boric's, you know, um, kind of uh, uh, catchphrase of, you know, this is the, the kind of birthplace of neoliberalism, let's make it the kind of graveyard. Yeah. Um, and I That's do think one. it is a re- really important development in, in that regard, even just, and, and I think also from a younger generation, I think of some of like Kerry Milburn's work on Generation Left idea that, that there is a kind of growing renewal of a kind of collectivist left-wing project that is really hopeful. Um, at the same time, you know, um, others have pointed out with, with the book is that, that this idea of futil- the, the futilitarian condition and then the kind of subjective impact of, of that can also lead towards more kind of um, fascist kind of expressions of, of yeah. anger. Um, and that is the danger. And I guess what I, again, what one of the... Uh, what did Walter of... Benjamin say, though? Uh, Zizek mentioned this at some point, you know. Uh, fascism is always an expression of a failed revolution. You know, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, but I always thought that that was pretty telling. Yeah. And I think that's the danger, is that, that, that this this kind of condition that we're in, that I'm trying to name, can quite, as easy, can quite easily merge towards a kind of more kind of active version of nihilism that that overlaps with a kind of fascist project so one of the real aims of this book is to try and turn that sense of futility away from a kind of um far-right nihilistic and and um sort of nationalist project towards a a a kind of socialist a left-wing communist kind of project in that um but what in order to get to there we have to actually kind of admit to ourselves that this condition exists that we have to recognize this utility that and in part in the, the you know chapter five of the book I, I go through some of the kind of problematic kind of what we might think of as kind of left-wing or, or liberal positions that actually just cement the kind of neoliberal rationality that see political the political strictly through the eyes of the individual and and simply that that individual action will will kind of change the world, and this is we have to move away from that. Uh, but there is hope to show that that is happening. Um, 
I'm sure you, I think, as you said, you see yourself as more optimistic. And, and I, I am an optimistic person. You probably might not have garnered <laughs> that from, from the book. Um, but I feel like that the book, the aim of the book was to kind of, kind of delve into that darkness and bring it to light and get us on the left to kind of face it and to admit it on some level as a means to therefore put forward a more optimistic version of the future. Because if we let this kind of utilitarian condition fester and 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 exist in a way that it does and tick along without us really confronting it on some level, it will be captured by the right. Um, and one thing you can say about the right during the kind of neoliberal decades is that they have managed more convincingly to capture the kind of political imagination. Um, but I think the left is beginning to fight back on that. And I think there is a new imaginary kind of developing and that's very exciting. And what, what it exactly looks like, it's hard to know, but it, it, it exists much more now than it did even five, six years ago. And that yeah. is exciting. Um, so yeah, I am optimistic. I really, I really am. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's very exciting for me as well. Uh, and, uh, I'm hoping for a day, uh, where we don't need to kind of, hold steadfastly uh to the kind of gramscian injunction you know pessimism of the intellect optimism of the will because uh, i do think there might be some reasons for very cautious optimism uh of the intellect given recent transitions but you know just a shameless capitalist plug at the end as we need to do <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. utilitarianism neoliberalism and the production of uselessness uh one of the best books i read last year again short sweet uh succinct uh you can get through it in two days 100% pick up a copy uh, if you happen to have 20 bucks lying around. Uh, but Neil, thanks a lot for coming on the channel. Again, I really enjoyed talking with you uh, and I really love this book. So thank thanks you so much, Matt. Me. I really appreciate it. And thanks for your review. It was really um, generous. Anything I can do. Uh, so solidarity, left is best, and we hope yep. to talk to you again in the future. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. Cool.